All right. Well, here we go. You know what I'm going to say. So get get your fingers ready and let's go. Turn with me, if you will, to where this Torah, Torah portion begins this week. It is uh, the book of, uh, and now we're uh, still in Exodus, um, chapter 18. And, of course, this is probably one of the most famous uh, parashot in the whole book because this is the one where we're going to see the first reading of the uh, the Ten Commandments, the Ten Deborim. And it's called Parsha Yitro because that is the first uh, unique word here. It says, uh, and um, Yitro, the priest of Midian. Moshe's father-in-law heard about all that Elohim had done for Moshe and for Israel, his people, how Yahuwah had brought Israel out of Mitzrayim, or Israel, and Yitro, Moshe's father-in-law, took Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had uh, shalacked her, sent her away. Now, there's a lot of speculation as to why this would be, but probably the most logical, the consistent explanation is that he just was afraid or, or was aware that there were going to be some pretty gnarly things coming down, and he may have just put her uh, away for a while for her own safety. But, again, we're not told. Uh, and her two sons, of course, uh, that he brought back, uh, of whom the name of the first one was Gershom, for he has said... I have been a stranger in a strange land. And that uh, that word ger there, of course, is the root that you may recognize. The name of the other was Eliezer, for the El of my father was my help. And he delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Then it says, and they, um, Moshe's father-in-law Yitro, and um, Yitro came with his sons and his wife unto Moshe, Bamidbar in the wilderness where he was encamped at the Mount of Elohim. And he said to Moshe, I, your father-in-law Yitro, have come to you, along with your wife and her two sons with her. So Moshe went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down, and he kissed him. They asked each other how they were doing, about their welfare. Then they came in the tent. And Moshe told his father-in-law all that Yahuwah had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the travail that had come upon them along the way, and how Yahuwah delivered them. And Yitro rejoiced for all the goodness which Yehoah had done to Israel, in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Yitro said, Blessed be Yehoah. Now remember, this fellow is arguably at this point, or up until this point, a pagan. He is called a priest of Midian. And he says, Blessed be Yehoah, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, out of the hand of Pharaoh, who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. And he said, Now I know. And that word there is uh, yada, or actually in the first person, um, I know, yadati, that Yahuwah is greater than all of the gods. Yea, for he, uh, that they dealt proudly against them. And Yitro, Moshe's father-in-law, took a burnt offering, sacrifices to Elohim, and Aaron came, and all the elders of Israel, to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before Elohim. Now, you notice there's something interesting here, and uh, the sages have pointed this out, and um, I tend to think they make a pretty good case, because you notice what name is missing. Got Moshe, got Aaron, got all the elders of Israel, they're breaking bread before Yah, but where's Moshe? Interesting. It doesn't say, well, does that mean he was just assumed to be there, or does it mean, hmm, well, let's see what the next verse says. came to pass on the morning that Moshe sat to judge the people. People stood around uh, about Moshe from morning until evening. So was this instead of the feast? Is that what he was doing too? We are not explicitly told, but notice what happens next. And this is part of the thing that I think buttresses the case that maybe Moses missed the feast because he had something else that he was doing. So his father-in-law saw all that he did for the people, and he said, What is this thing you're doing to the people? 
Why are you sitting yourself alone, all the people stand around you from morning until evening? Well, said Moshe to his father-in-law, because people come to inquire unto me uh, of Elohim. So when they have a matter, it comes to me, and I judge between a man and his neighbor, and I make them know the statutes of Elohim and all of his uh, Torahtin, his instructions. So Moshe's father-in-law said to him, You know what? This thing you're doing, it ain't good. It is low tove. Literally, not good or no good. And uh, at that at that point, I'll pause a second, because there's an observation I usually try to make here, too. One of the things I like about Yitro is that he doesn't just say this is no good and leave it at that. He has constructive criticism and a suggestion to make along with it. And that's what happens next. He says, you're going to wear yourself down. You'll, uh, you'll have what we would call early burnout today. You'll wear away both you and the people that are trying to do this thing with you. Because it's just plain too heavy for you, too big to bear. You're not able to perform it all by yourself. So hearken now, Shamar, unto my voice. Because I'm going to give you counsel. And Elohim be with you. Notice, too, not only is he going to offer a suggestion, he's going to suggest that Moshe pray about it, think about it, and then, if he's told to, then implement it. So he says, look, Elohim be with you. For you, for the people, be thou for the people before Elohim. So in other words, um, you are the one who will go before before El. Fine. Bring the causes, the things that they bring to you unto Elohim. And you shall teach them, great, the statutes, uh, the hukim, and the Torahot, the uh, instructions. Uh, Laws is how the English renders it, but as you know, I like the word instruction better because it's more than just a list of commandments. You shall show them the way wherein they must walk and the work that they need to do. Moreover, you provide out of all the people, here comes the suggestion, able men, men that fear Elohim, men of truth, hating unjust gain, and place such, those good men, over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, rulers of tens. And let these folks judge the people at all seasons. Now, basically what he's going to describe here is a hierarchy and what we would now call delegation of authority, kind of a management structure. It'll be that uh, all the big stuff, all the great matters, they bring to you. But everything that's smaller than that, they can handle unto themselves. So they judge that. And that'll make it easier for you to bear the burdens because they'll help you bear it. Now, if you'll do this thing, and here it comes, if Elohim shall command you so, then you'll be able to put up with it. You'll be able to endure. And all these people will go to their place in peace. So it says, Moshe hearkened to the voice of his father. And I did all that he had said. So Moshe chose able men out of all Israel. He made them heads of the people, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people all seasons. The hard cases they brought to Moshe, but every small matter they could handle, they judged themselves. And Moshe then let his father-in-law depart, and he went his way into his own land. Now, this is another place where the uh, the end is kind of left hanging. We're, go- we're going to notice that the, we're not, we haven't seen the last of Yitro. Uh, he um, perhaps has more names that he uh, sees used than any other person I can think of in, in Scripture. But it's interesting that it says he went his way. And so the sages are asking. Now, he's had this great uh, revelation from Moshe. He knows about the Elohim of the Hebrews. Uh, does he? Uh, is he now on, uh, what was it, um, uh, the John Belushi movie, The Blues Brothers. You're now on a mission from God. Um, it just might be. Again, we're not given explicit information there, but uh, he certainly went on his way knowing something, understanding something that he did not before. All right, the next chapter says, In the third month, 
after the Bani Israel had gone forth out of the land of Mitraim. Same day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. Now, as I read these next couple of verses, I think it's interesting to note something. And you see it in the English if it's properly translated. You certainly see it in the Hebrew. And that is that um, throughout this set of two verses that go together here, we're going to see plural, 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 plural. Okay, It is they. It is um, the children of Israel. They, they, they. When they departed from Rephidim, when they came to the wilderness of Sinai, they encamped in the wilderness. And there, all of a sudden, it switches to singular. And there, Israel encamped before the mount. So the implication I like, I think it's uh, something the sages have pointed out as well, and uh, one of those things that it, it once you see it, it kind of leaps off the page at you, but not until then. It's they, 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 up until they get into the wilderness here, and they encamp before the mount, and now they are echad. Now it is Israel, singular. So Moshe went up unto Elohim, and Elohim called unto him from out of the mountain, saying, this is what you're going to need to say to the, notice we're going to see both names here too. Uh, Yaakov being the one fellow who consistently not only is uh, called by the new name, but also very frequently by the um, old name, uh, Jacob or Yaakov, and sometimes, as it is here, even in the very same verse. So Moshe is told, this is what you will say to the house of Yaakov and tell the Benai Israel. Isn't that interesting? Say this to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel. And uh, I I wonder uh, if that includes us, right? It's a um, speak unto the children of of Jacob, or the house of Jacob, and and what we have is recorded for all all posterity. Here's what he said. You've seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagle's wings, how I brought you out unto myself. Now, therefore, if, that's a big word in Hebrew and in English, if, Im, you will hearken unto my voice indeed, and keep Briti, my covenant, then you shall be my own treasure from among all peoples, because the whole earth is mine. And you shall be unto me, this is a famous verse, right? Unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy or set apart Kadosh nation. These are the words which they, which you, Moshe, shall speak unto the Benai Israel, The ones that have been in, in the Midbar, Bamidbar here and now are Echad. So Moshe came, he called for the elders of the people, he set before them all these words which Yahuwah had commanded him, and all of the people, this is key, Kol Ha'am said, they answered together, they spoke in other words with one voice, and they said, all that Yahuwah has spoken, we will do. That's kind of neat. Now notice, we haven't even had the Ten Commandments yet. We haven't had the rest of the instruction that is going to follow. But they are already saying, all that Yahuwah has spoken, we will do. So Moshe reported the words of the people unto Yahuwah. And then Yahuwah said to Moshe, Lo, I come unto you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and they also may believe you, Ha'olam, forever, or Le'olam. And Moshe told the words of the people unto Yahuwah. Yahuwah said to Moshe, Then go unto the people, sanctify them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments. Be ready for the third day. Be ready against the third day, some English renderings say, because that's the day that Yahuwah will come down into the sight of all the people upon Mount Sinai. And you'll set bounds 
uh, unto the people round about, saying, Look, be careful, take heed, that you do not go up onto the mountain. Don't even touch the border of it, because whomsoever touches the mount shall surely be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Whether it be beast or man, it shall not live. When the horns of the when the ram's horn, the shofar, sounds long, they shall come up to the mount. So Moshe went down from the mountain to the people and sacrificed. I'm sorry, and sanctified the people. They washed their garments, and he said to the people, "Be ready against the third day." And by the way, do not come near your wife. Now the word here in Hebrew is ish. Uh, Isha, rather. Of course, that is the word that means both wife and woman. And uh, obviously, the the proper uh, translation into English, which is context-dependent, is um, they shouldn't be coming near women that aren't their wives anyway, so it means come near your wife. Now, it came to pass on the third day when it was morning. There were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount and the voice of a horn. This is the first time we actually saw the, the ram's horn here. It's a slightly different word. But this is the first use of the word shofar, uh, the horn, exceedingly loud in Scripture. And all the people that were in the camp trembled. So Moshe brought forth the people out of the camp to meet Elohim. They stood at the nether part of the mount. Now, Mount Sinai, it says, was altogether on smoke. Because Yahuwah descended upon it in fire, the smoke ascended like the smoke out of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. This was probably, uh, no, I don't say probably, this was an incredibly impressive, perhaps even frightening sight. Now, when the voice of the the, the horn, the shofar, uh, waxed louder and louder, Moshe spoke, Elohim answered him by a voice. And Yahuwah came down upon Mount Sinai to the top of the mount, and Yahuwah called Moshe up to the top of the mount, uh, Hahar, and Moshe went up. That word, he, he literally made Allah. He went up. And uh, Yahuwah said unto Moshe, Go down, uh, charge the people, give them this instruction, lest they break through unto Yahuwah to try to gaze, and many of them perish. So he is repeating again, keep them away from the mountain while this is going on. Also the Kohanim that come near Yahuwah sanctify themselves, uh, lest Yahuwah break forth upon them. Now, this has always kind of fascinated me, too, because the Kohanim, it says, uh, who? Well, remember, the Kohanim are going to be the descendants of Aaron. and um, But officially, at least, we have not had that given yet. So it's, it's interesting that the word would be used here prior to that. Then Moshe said unto the uh, to Yahuwah, People can't come up to Mount Sinai because you charged this thing, set bounds around it, and sanctify it. So he's he's repeating, no, don't worry about it. Oh, we've already got that taken care of, I think. You then said to him, go, get on down. You shall come up, you and Aaron with you, but do not let the priests, the Kohanim, and the people break through to come up unto Yahuwah, lest he break forth upon them. So Moshe went down to the people and he told them. And, and then it says, this is verse 20. Uh, this is essentially the end of the Torah portion for this week and also... Uh, the first rendering of what have been called Ha Deberim, the ten uh, instructions, words, is literally what it means, the ten things, the ten sayings, or, of course, uh, often commonly referred to in English as the Ten Commandments. Now, the question is, where are the dividing lines? Remember, the uh, the verses and the numbering that's put in here is a little bit on the arbitrary side. Somebody just put them in. But what is fascinating to me is, you will see, if you read Catholic Bibles, you'll see different, different breakdowns. You'll see different uh, breakdowns in the Tanakh, from the rabbis, and um, so the numberings may change. Now, I do kind of tend to, and I, I usually explain this, I like a, a good friend of mine who's uh, who was a uh, high-ranking rabbi and uh, 
A wonderful fellow. He's passed now, unfortunately. But uh, I like his explanation of the first commandment. He says uh, it goes like this. And I'll read it in Hebrew first. Um, Anoki Yahuwah Eloheka. In English, you'll see it rendered, I am the Lord your God. Well, remember, they took the right important word out of there. He says, Anoki Yahuwah. That, of course, is the thing that we've seen over and over and over again. It's the point of the book of Exodus that they will know that. And he says, Anoki Yahuwah Eloheka. Now, my rabbi friend says, here's the key. If you really want to think about what the first commandment is, just put a period there. Because that's the command. Now, how is that a commandment? To know that I am. That I am who I say I am. I am who I was. And, and I am who I will be. And um, if you just understand that, everything else falls into place. So I've always thought that is a really wonderful explanation. There is more to the, uh, the, the so-called first commandment. But I still like the idea of put a period there and emphasize how important that is. But let me read it without the period, just for um, the continuity's sake. Because the second part of it is an explanation. An- Anoki Yahuwah, I am Yahuwah Yerel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Is this the second command, therefore? You shall have no other Elohim before me, no other gods, real or imagined. You shall have no other Elohim before me. Now, some will say that's all the first commandment. Uh, again, I'm not going to get too hung up on how we count and number these things, but what is important is we understand the emphasis. You shall not make unto yourself a graven image, a um, uh, pasal. What does that mean, graven image? Well, you know, graven is often thought to, to me referred to as a gravening tool or a sculpting tool or something that might be used in molding idols or carving idols and so forth. But um, the context here at least gives us a pretty good clue of what's being forbidden. Don't make one of these things, nor any manner of likeness of anything that's in the heavens above or the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Wow, that's pretty broad, isn't it? And you shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For Ani, I am Yahuwah Yerel, and I'm a jealous El, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Notice, third or fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto the thousandth generation of them that, notice, there's, an, there's a connective in here, that love me, and keep my um, mitzvoti, my instruction, my commandments. Hearken. So, third or fourth generation of those that hate me, but mercy unto the thousandth generation, we're still within that parameter for sure, of those that do two things, A, love me, and B, keep my commandments. The next one. You shall not. Now, this one is problematic, and I'm going to suggest, and I may even say something that will upset some folks, but I will do that because it's so important that we get this right. Notice, it says here in the Hebrew, you shall not take the name of Yahuwah Eloheka in vain um, for nothing. Make a false report about it is one way to think about it. But isn't it interesting? You shall not take the name of yod heh vav and turn it into nothingness. I know. How about if you just take his name out of here and get rid of it and put something in its place that people think is his name, but it's not? 
I will suggest if you really want an understanding of how to take his name in vain, folks, take it out of the Bible 7,000 times and put capital L-O-R-D in there instead so that people don't even know what his real name is. What does he say? Because Yahuwah, no, not the Lord, Yahuwah will not hold him guiltless who makes his name into nothingness, vanity, falsehood, emptiness. Wow. Isn't that interesting? Now, we will hear, and here I'm going to say it. We will hear, that means you're not supposed to say, God damn it. What? That's not even his name. That's not even a real title. His, his, uh, the, the, the Hebrew word, of course, is El, and we would, we would say that he is a God. Well, there's lots of gods, right? Elohim, plural. Uh, there is one true who is, uh, deserving of that term, but there's all kinds of fake gods. And, um, capital L-O-R-D, we got fake lords and fake gods all over the place. I can't help but think if we really want to understand this commandment, recognize that his name is not God. His name is not Lord. His name is yod heh vav That's what gets taken out and what they have made vanity, falsehood, and emptiness by replacing it. So you want to get all upset about something? Don't get upset about somebody saying the GD word. Get upset about them lying to you about what his real name even is and taken out of the Bible and replacing it with stuff that is not only meaningless but is arguably Vanity, emptiness, and falsehood. How about the next one? This was another one that uh, the same people that took his name out, uh, well, and uh, others besides, I guess, by this time, have changed his Sabbath. They changed his name, why not change his Sabbath too? Remember, he says the Sabbath day. That word there is uh, zakor. That means to um, honor, set apart, understand, uh, don't forget. But it's, um, it's really uh, it's a commandment to say, you know, I, I taught you this. I'm teaching you this. I want you to remember it. Keep it set apart. Call to mind is one way to render that in, in English. Call to mind the Sabbath day to keep it set apart. How do you keep it set apart? Well, I know. Let's just get rid of it, turn it into a day when people can go do something, whatever they want, and then we'll put the, his real day, and we'll say it's the next day instead. Wrong. Because he gives us more de- more description, more instruction about this one than he does the ones that have come before it. Six days you do all your work. And the seventh day, that is a Sabbath unto, not the Lord your God, no, his real name, Yahuwah Eloheka. In it you shall not do any manner of work. Not any manner of work. Not you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your manservant, nor your maidservant, nor your cattle, nor the stranger that's within your gates. You do not do any work on his set-apart day. You remember it, keep it holy. Because, here comes the because. Because in six days, Yahuwah made heaven and earth, the sea, everything that's in them, and he rested on the seventh day. And therefore, it says, Yahuwah has blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it, has set it apart, so that we should do so as well. It is a, um, it's a fairly lengthy commandment with a lot of explanation. And isn't it funny? It's one of the ones that is most violated by the whore church and done away with. Probably not quite as much so as getting rid of his name and putting fakes in there in place and turning it into nothingness and saying that, uh, you know, what you're not supposed to do is say the goddammit word. No, no, because that's not his name. And um, it has nothing to do with what the commandment is actually saying. It's turning his name into nothingness, emptiness, falsehood that is the real problem. Honor your father and your mother, says the next one, that your days may be long upon the land which Yahuwah your El is giving you, giveth you. Actually, it's in the process at this point. 
Your days may be long upon the land. Well, this is the uh, the commandment in the Ten Deborim, as what most of the sages will note. The only one that actually has a, a specific uh, understanding associated with it. Honor your father and your mother, so that your days may be long upon the land which Yahuwah gives you. Then the next few are interesting because each of these is basically a two-word commandment, and it's also a two-word commandment of which first word is low, which means thou shalt not, Old English, or just don't, or no, in, in, uh, in the modern rendering. So literally, the first one is no tirtzach. No tirtzach. All right, you've heard it in the King James, thou shalt not kill at wrong. Uh, killing is not what is prohibited here. There are lots of things that, that um, you, you know, in self-defense, killing is actually okay. The word is murder, and that's different. Now, I like the rendering, uh, thou shalt not slay, because that's usually how this word tirtzak is rendered in English. And by the way, that is the first use in the Bible, too. So the first time we see the word is the prohibition against it. Don't do it. And what is it that, that is being done? It's uh, to slay somebody. To murder them, we we might say murder in the first degree, or the kind of thing which is a an act of a wanton killing, as opposed to, right? If someone comes to slay you, you have every right. As a matter of fact, you actually have an obligation to defend yourself. Next one, lo, um, tinaf, lo tinaf. First use of this one as well. Uh, you shall not commit adultery. Now, what is adultery? Uh-oh, here's where the whore church gets completely wrapped around the axle. We've got to understand what it is. The first use of the word, it requires, to have an adultery situation, requires a married woman, an isha. The only way to commit adultery is to have a married woman, who, in other words, is already someone else's wife. And that is the definition of adultery. Uh, a couple things should be obvious, but they're not, and they tend to get grossly overlooked by uh, the whore church that, uh, you know, doesn't want to... Uh, they like to take his name in vain all the time, and they tell you that saying something completely different is. They also will tell you that adultery is what it's not. Adultery has nothing to do with a license. Uh, what it has to do with is a consummated relationship between a man and his isha, his wife. And when a man has taken an Isha and she has become his wife, if then she goes and uh, and sleeps with, there's the um, uh, the euphemism in modern English, some other man, that is adultery. The man, on the other hand, takes a virgin. Well, that's not uh, adultery, even if he has a wife. What that is, is he's just taken another wife. Uh, provided the father, of course, as we'll see elsewhere in the Torah, uh, gives his permission. He, he does have veto power. But regardless, this is another one of these simple two-word commandments that um, if we misunderstand, just causes all kinds of problems. How about this third one? This is interesting as well. And this one is um, lo, um, lo tignov. Lo tignov. There we go. Thou shalt not steal is how it's rendered. Now, this one is also kind of interesting. Lo tignov. Because we're going to see the next commandment here having to do with not coveting your neighbor's house or his wife or his manservant or his maidservant or his ox or his ass or anything that is your neighbor's. If you can't covet something, doesn't it kind of stand to reason that you can't really steal it? Uh, unless it's, um, you know, by accident, or which in which case you return it, and that's not really theft. But 
to not covet is a general prohibition. If you can't covet a man's wife, that explains how come Yeshua says, if you look at him in the, in the tent, if you look at a man's wife in, in, with intent to, uh, to covet her, you have committed adultery in your heart. That part makes sense when you understand this. The action precedes, or the, the thought precedes the action. But um, the, the reason why I'm, I'm emphasizing this is this, this word here in the Hebrew, a lot of the, um, the, the Hebrew scholars will say what this word really is saying is you're not to kidnap. Don't steal somebody's child. Or don't steal persons, people. Now, why is that an interesting rendering? Well, because it's a different commandment than the one that's already covered by thou shalt not covet. If you can't covet something, you can't very well steal it. So I've always found that kind of a compelling argument. Uh, Finally, the last one in the low series here, but it's uh, a little bit more... uh, um, more verbiage to it, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Makes sense. We're going to see a lot more about this. In other words, don't lie about something and uh, say that your neighbor did it when he didn't do it or, or whatever. Do not bear false witness against your neighbor. We've mentioned the next one. Don't covet anything your neighbor has. And finally, it says... Oh, and by the way, one, one rendering of this that I like uh, and when it comes to all of this listing of things here that you're not to, uh, to covet, to lust for, to think secretly about getting somehow. Don't covet your neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, his maidservant, his ox, his ass, or anything that is your neighbor's. And uh, the, uh, the best explanation I've heard about this is you have a permitted reach. In other words, things that the Creator has given you. Your property, your wives, or your children, or your house, or the things that are in fact yours. Those are within your permitted reach. But you do not take something that is someone else's because it is outside of your permitted reach. Now, the next statement is kind of interesting, and uh, this is one that I I usually mention too because it's always fascinated me as an engineer. And um, here is the Rashiism on this. Okay, Rashi essentially says, note, note the word that's used in here. It says, and all the people, literally the word here is roim. They saw, what did they see? First thing they saw, the thunderings and the lightnings and the voice of the horn, the mountain smoking. Now, some of these things we'd say, okay, I can see how we might see the lightnings or we might see the mountain smoking. But we don't really see the thunderings, do we? We don't really see the voice of the horn, do we? Well, I think in this case they did. So what does that mean? The use of the word is interesting, right? A picture is worth a thousand words. So essentially, uh, the way I like to think of this, now this is this is my understanding of, of a Hebrew uh, phrase, but I do think what was being described here with this really interesting turn of phrase is this was a massive data download. In other words, the creator of the universe, for the first time in human history, and perhaps the only time, is speaking in mass to his people. And the, um, the, um, the associated writings, some of the histories and so forth, say that this was uh, earth-shattering. Now, by the way, Torah later tells us this as well. This scared the heck out of people. And that literally calves, um, uh, uh, cows calved, animals gave birth, the mountain shook, rocks split. This was something to behold. Obviously, it made a lifelong impression on these people. And um, I kind of tend to think that not only was it loud, but, again, this was data overload. This was people basically hearing literally the voice of Elohim himself and getting all of this stuff in a, um, in a wide band download. 
like having you know so much crammed into your brain at one time that they just go, eh, I can't handle it. And that does seem to be the way they react. So when you when you put that in context, we'll read through the rest of it. I hope that'll make sense. People saw it. It says they saw the thunderings, the lightnings, the voice of the horn of Mount Smoke. And when they saw it, they trembled, scared the heck out of them. They tried to stand far off. They said to Moshe, Hey, look, you you speak to us, and we'll all hear. Okay, so far so good. But don't let Elohim speak with us anymore, because otherwise that just might kill us. Okay, lest we die. And again, I do think that makes some sense. This was such a massive overload that they just basically said, I, I don't think we can handle this anymore. Moshe then said unto the people, Fear not, because Elohim has come to test you, to prove you, that his fear may be before you, so that you sin not. He gave you a day to download so that you would have a greater understanding. With the point being, do not violate his instruction. People then stood far off. Moshe drew near under the thick darkness where Elohim was. Now this is the first use of that word here that's rendered as gloom or darkness, and it's ha-ar-pal, thick darkness. Moshe uh, then hears from Yahuwah the following, Thus you shall say unto the Benai Israel, You yourselves have seen, there's that same reference, you've seen, you've seen the data download here, that I have talked with you from Hashemayim, from the heavens. You shall not make with me uh, fake gods, gods of silver or gods of gold. Don't make these for yourselves. An altar of earth is what you'll, you'll make to me. And you shall sacrifice on that your burnt offerings, your peace offerings, your shalomim, your sheep, your oxen, in every place where I cause my name to be mentioned. My name, Shemi, no, not the Lord, his real one, the one that they take out. And that's where I will come to you and bless you. Now, if you make me an altar of stone, you are not to build it out of hewn stones, nor are you to lift up any tool upon it. This has always been kind of an interesting um, commandment. You do not do work upon the stones. The stones are the way I made them. And an altar to me is to be built from stones the way I make them. Your, your creative contribution, it sounds like, is to place the stones in the proper positions Right? Use some creative input, understand which stones fit best and how to make the altar. But as far as making a tool, uh-uh. Nope, don't use a tool on it at all. Because if you do that, you have, in fact, um, and it's, prof- it's the peel conjugation, which is very emphatic, uh, you have kalaled it, you have perforated it, you've wounded it, you've defiled it, you have violated it. Don't do that. And the last verse in the, uh, in the chapter and in the portion is the final one here. And this is an instruction about how it is that the people who come up to this altar are to be clothed. You're not to go up via steps to my altar. Don't go up via steps to my altar. And I guess if you think about when you climb on a stair and you lift up your robe, right, as your knee comes up, um, there might be exposure of parts that um, you're not supposed to expose. And it says that, that your nakedness not be uncovered thereon. So there's a ramp, I guess, rather than steps, so that you don't have that problem. And with that, uh, the Torah portion ends. So uh, kind of a fascinating description of a lot of things. And yeah, um, no doubt about it, people regard, and properly so, this is very important. But it's interesting to me as well how they will say on the one hand, this is the important stuff. This is the Ten Commandments of Elohim. How many of them do they actually keep, obey, honor, respect? do. It's, it's, it's an interesting contrast, isn't it? All right, with that, uh, let's pause, and um, we'll have one more song, 
and then we will um, then we'll talk about what's going on in the world. And there is a lot on that score. Let's see. I'll ask go first. Do we have any um, do we have any uh, questions or um, or comments? I see some some comments. Yeah, the um, Hashem is in fact another way of not having to say the name. As a matter of fact, if you talk to a, a Torah observant Jew or a rabbi, they will tell you uh, the rules for how it is that you're supposed to not say the name. Now, the claim that they will use is, well, we're not desecrating the name because you might not even uh, you might not even know what it is, and you might say it wrong or something like that. Um, so they're at least concerned about not saying the name wrong, as opposed to deliberately turning it into nothingness. And and I got to admit. I see a certain contradiction there when they're saying, okay, we're going to replace his his name because it's so holy we don't want to say it. We'll replace it with something when he says we're supposed to know it and honor it and not reduce it to nothingness. So uh, color me skeptical about that. But, yes, uh, the word is, when you see yod heh vav Hey, what a what a observant Jew will do is if they are reading Scripture... If they're actually reading scripture and that verboten word, that name, yod heh vav heh appears, they will replace it with Adonai. And then if it's just talking about it and the name appears and they're saying, now, oh, you know, uh, uh, rather than saying uh, the Lord did this like um, a, a sun god day Christian would, they say Hashem, which is the name. So I'll take the name out and put Hashem, the name, in back, which is kind of funny in a way, but um, but there you go. So um, yeah, his name is uh, his name Hashem. No, his that would be like redundant, redundant, like like redundant, redundant. Uh, his name Hashem, his name, his name. Anyway, there you go. And and Charlotte, I think I agree. Uh, it, it, many of them have 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 been caused to forget what his name is. And as a matter of fact, there is such a prohibition. Uh, I have even seen some uh, some pretty, I would say, convincing arguments that Hebrew itself had some of the vowel pointers changed. So, for example, when I hear people say his name and the name you're supposed to pronounce it the way that normal Hebrew says Yod Hey Vav Hey would be Yehovah, and you'll hear that. Now, I, I'm and and I have some people that I respect that would go with that. And in terms of modern Hebrew grammar and what uh, what vowel pointers go with what words and so forth, that is correct. But what it ignores, or at least tends to forget, is there was actually a time when the rabbis were so concerned about trying to change his name, take it out, and not let people even know how to pronounce it, that they changed some of the rules of grammar. At least that's the argument. Can't prove it because it's been lost in antiquity now. But that um, they were so concerned about his name and hiding it that they changed the rules of grammar. So, for example, Yah, uh, and it is Yahuda, the name of the tribe, became Yehovah. Hmm. Uh, again, color me skeptical. So come out of her, oh my people, for the time has come. Judge Babylon. So come out of her. Good morning. Let's talk about Parsha Yitro. This, of course, is uh, one of the most famous in the book because it is the first time that, among other things, we're going to see the giving of what are called in uh, much of the uh, Christian church, which ignores some of them, not all of them, the uh, Ten Commandments. Uh, the, uh, the Hebrew word literally is Ten Deborim. And um, in, in this case, Deborim means the ten sayings, the ten words. That's actually often how it's translated. 
or even the ten things, ten things that are important to remember. And like I said, sometimes um, we are actually taught to remember some of them, and that's what is uh, kind of ironic here. What I want to do is uh, to take a look at that and some other elements of the partial. Let's see if we can't make some sense of this in a time where there is so much going on that is... Um, uh, of concern, and um, it's also the kind of thing that we're going to have to be aware of, and that's why I want to spend some some special time talking about elements of this portion, this parsha. So it starts out in Exodus chapter 18 about Yitro. Of course, you've heard the name, uh, you know, not the Beverly Hillbillies, but Jethro, the priest of Midian, who's Moshe's father-in-law. And he heard about all that Elohim had done for Moses and how he had drawn or brought Israel out of Mitzrayim. So he came and he brought Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her away, and the two sons. And the story proceeds from there. Now what's interesting, of course, is he is told the story by Moshe of all the things that happened. And he says, Blessed be Yahuwah who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, out of the hand of Pharaoh, who delivered the people from under the hand of Egyptians. And what I think is significant about this is that uh, evidently, from all that we know, uh, Yitro or Jethro is, in fact, a priest of Midian. He's a pagan. He has been dealing with all kinds of other gods. And now he says, uh, Yahuwah is, in fact, greater than all those other gods. So he gets it. And that is vital. Now, it turns out that when he leaves, and that happens in this portion, he goes out to, um, to do what? Well, he um, evidently goes out to spread the word, because later we're going to hear, now we don't know it was always through uh, Yitro, but certainly I suspect he had uh, a large hand in all of this. But we have uh, any number of the Canaanite peoples who have heard of the stories. Now, certainly there are going to be other ways they hear the stories, too. But bear in mind that this was part of the thing that, that Yah had promised. These other latent lands, uh, these people in the land, rather, they're... Um, they're going to hear about what you have done, what you have done, what I have done for you and through you. They're going to be scared to death of you, and that is indeed a really big part of what is going to happen. So, a um, couple other, I guess, comments, observations, things that we want to just kind of set the table with before we continue. Note that over and over and over again, the theme of the Exodus is Ki Ani Yahuwah. You will know, um, Moses will know, the people of Israel will know, the mixed multitude will know, all of uh, Pharaoh's people, Egypt will know, Pharaoh himself will know. It might be the last thing he learns. Ki Ani Yahuwah. And now it turns out Jithro, uh, Yitro too, he also understands. And one of the elements of this is an element we keep hearing repeated. It's part of the, uh, the regular Seder for the Passover and so forth. I brought you out by a mighty hand. And remember, there's a place where Moshe says, just prior to the crossing of the Red Sea and the uh, disaster for the Egyptians there, at least, sit still. Just sit back and watch. See the salvation, the Yeshua, literally, of yod heh vav And they did. They didn't really have to do anything except get up and go when the time came. And he did all the uh, the really important work, the uh, the minimum necessary miracle, which is one of the biggest in all of human history. So, interestingly, again, they were delivered by his mighty hand, and yet, what do we see in places like uh, Exodus 12, 36? Well, they despoiled the Egyptians. So we know that they, they gave them gifts of uh, gold and silver and jewels and clothing and so forth. Well, obviously, they also gave them armaments because they came out of Egypt armed. They came out of bondage. How's that for irony, right? Armed. Uh, if the people of Egypt, uh, of Israel, had all had swords, I don't think that the Egyptian taskmasters would have been able to enforce this idea of go out and make bricks and we're not going to give you any straw. 
So again, there is some connection of the dots involved there, but certainly we, we do see the scripture that says they were, um, they despoiled the Egyptians, and we know that they had armaments and shields and swords and things later. They were gonna need these for the land. So what's the difference here? And I think that's part of key to what I want to kind of set up and talk about today. It was true that when it came to Pharaoh, when it came to deliverance from bondage, Yah essentially did all the work. Now, later on, uh, they are going to do what they do at his command, with his guidance, with his help, with his protection. But they are going to, in fact, have to fight the battles. Now, one of the things they're going to learn is, if you go out and fight the battle half-cocked when I didn't tell you to, you're going to get your head handed to you. But you wait till you're, have, till you're doing what you're doing at my direction in the way that I tell you to do it, and it's going to go great. So that's part of the message here. And I think it's part of the message that we probably need to really try to be praying about and thinking about, too. They were, in fact, armed when they came out of bondage. And he, in fact, did help them, did deliver them. But there was a, a different scale of the way things worked when he was fighting the battle for them against Pharaoh to show them, Ki and Yahuwah, and then later that they were going to have to fight some of their own battles with his help and his protection, nevertheless, that they were going to have to uh, to do what they needed to do, take the land. All right, which leads us to kind of the next major part of the the story here. Uh, yes, I won't uh, I won't minimize it, but I don't think it's quite as important to uh, where I want to go specifically today. We get Yitro advising his son-in-law about delegation of authority. Hey, you're taking too much on yourself. This is not good. You need to be able to uh, to delegate some authority to captains of thousands and hundreds and fifties uh, and tens. So he does that. And uh, he hearkened and, uh, in fact, did what his father-in-law said because he obviously had it confirmed by Yah. As Yitro also said, hey, do that. Confirm and make sure he's going to tell you to do this. And then um, after Yitro leaves, then we're going to see the third month. So a lot of folks will say, and I, I think this is true, this is the time of Shavuot. Um, and, um, you know, historically, this would be the time after the, uh, the day of uh, Passover and the week of the Feast of Unleavened Bread and so forth. So we, we recognize the time frame here. They're Bumidbar, they're in the wilderness, and uh, Moshe calls to the elders of the people, and he says um, he's going to set these things before him. Remember, you've seen what I did to the Egyptians, said Yah, how I bore you on eagles' wings, brought you out unto myself. So now, therefore, if you will hearken to my voice indeed, and keep Briti, my covenant, then you'll be my own treasure from among all the peoples, because... All of the earth is mine. You'll be a set-apart, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words you speak to the Benai Israel. So Moshe did. He called the elders, and he repeated those words. And what was the response? All of the people answered together. And they said, Kol, right, all. And they said, Kol, all that Yahuwah has spoken, we will do. So uh, the words of the people were reported to Yahuwah. And uh, he says, I'm going to come speak with them so that they may um, hear when I speak with you and may believe you forever. Hmm. Well, then we know what happens next, right? Um, he gives the warning, don't come near the mountain, it's going to be kind of scary. And eventually, chapter 20 gives us the first rendering of the Ten Commandments. Now, I'm not going to read all of those again. I will note some elements about them, though, because what I really want to focus on are, um, he spoke these words, these uh, ha-deberim, and here they are. And the first one, of course, is Anoki, Yahuwah Eloheka, I am. And then uh, the corollary, the thing that goes with that, you will therefore have no other gods, no other fake Elohim in my face. 
and uh, we know the rest of them. At least what we we used to know the rest of them. Maybe maybe we never did hear all the rest of them because that's really what I want to talk about next today is um, what I call a pernicious doctrine. And unfortunately, this is pretty pervasive. Um, I will suggest if you want to check this out, go ahead and do it. Uh, you can look online. I did a I did a um, a word search just to uh, to see what would come up. For example, um, Ten Commandments in the New Testament. And what you'll find, of course, are a whole lot of um, so-called Christian teachings. I'm looking at one from GotQuestions.org, uh, ThirdMill.org, uh, Quora.com, um, GodWords.org, and so forth. Um, RevelationByJesusChrist.com. And um, some of them basically get closer than others, but essentially one of the threads that seems to run through a lot, not all, certainly because there are others that get it in here, but a lot of these um, these pernicious doctrines begin with this idea of, well, you know, if something's really important, it gets repeated in the quote-unquote New Testament, the apostolic writings. Really? Now, let me think about that for a second. I will contend that's kind of an asinine. Now I'll say it. That's a downright stupid, idiotic comment to make. If it's repeated in the New Testament, it's important. If it's not, it's not. Like like that he made you? Like that you're supposed to... Obey. How, how important does something have to be before you finally say it's so important? You'd think it would be obvious, you blithering idiot. Okay, so having put that part aside, I am going to go through this doctrine that says, well, you know, uh, maybe nine. Sometimes there's those that would say it's less, depending upon which Bible you look at. Uh, nine of those ten might be repeated. The rest of them we can do without. Well, here's one. You check a Catholic Bible. I have a Catholic Bible sitting on the shelf here. And you'll notice that the, that the commandment about um, not making a graven image, not making little shrines, uh, little idols of various saints and, and Mary and so forth, and setting those up and worshiping those, well, we don't like to talk about that one. So that one's kind of not in there. It's kind of sort of, but not really in there. Well, if they can take that one out, why can't they take the one about uh, six days you shall do your labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath unto Yahuwah? Oh, no, they see, that's, that's kind of in there, because you know what? If they had taken that out of the Old Testament, it would be about uh, 200 pages shorter than it is. And all those places where he says, keep my Sabbath forever throughout your generations and all your dwelling places always forever, over and over again, well, they'd have to have done a whole lot of twisting, and that's, uh, that's a lot harder to do, because there were copies, copies of these documents all over the place, and uh, there would have been more discussion, even than there has been, about the changes that we have seen, and some of the omissions that we have seen. So what I'm going to suggest, in other words, is if we go through and look at the pernicious doctrines that surround this, the so-called uh, Ten Commandments, it's not hard to see why it is that um, Christianity is such a mess, the whore church and, indeed, the whore synagogue, too. But I'm going to focus on the pernicious doctrine, uh, not just that if it's not repeated, it doesn't matter, but some other things that have been changed as well, some twistings, if you will. Uh, for example, um, the simple two-word commands, thou shalt not kill. Oops, that's not what it says in the Hebrew. It says thou shalt not slay. How's that? Now, there's a difference, right, between kill and slay. And as we know, self-defense may be um, killing, but it is not slaying. So there's one easy example. How about another one? Thou shalt not commit adultery. Well, adultery used to mean, actually it does mean in the Bible, that you are not to lay with a married woman, period. A married woman has one husband, and if it's not you, you basically just uh, stay away, period. 
Don't covet her. Don't think about her. And by the way, you're not supposed to covet anything that your neighbor has. That's another one of the commandments. So if anything, there is a little bit of repetition in that score. And I talked about that last night. There's there's a lot of things that you can uh, study and kind of glean from that from that notice. And of course, Yeshua talks about it in Matthew five as well. But what I want to focus on uh, just up front briefly is this idea of Isha. Isha is a Hebrew word that means woman. It's also the same Hebrew word that means wife. So when when that uh, famous place that they say Jesus raised the bar is in there, and that's a lie, where it says you're not to look upon an Isha and lust for her in your heart, because that's just like adultery. Well, you know why? Because coveting is forbidden. What's the condition? She's married. If she is an Isha, and we translate the word right, it means if she's a wife. You look on somebody's wife with covetousness, with lust in your heart, well, guess what? That's what he's talking about. It's pretty clear. It's matter of fact, it's undeniable. So here's one of those places where the twisting is so simple, once you see it, you can't unsee it. But what it amounts to is, even some of the things that you would think would be really clear. Thou shalt not slay. Now, if somebody comes to slay you, then what? Do you just let them do it? Isn't that kind of like giving them permission to slay you? Should you at least resist? Choose life. You remember, there is a two-word summary of the commandments and of, in fact, the entire Torah that makes any of these distinctions pretty easy to resolve if we think about it. So choose life means not only are you not to take your own life, you're to choose life. You're not to slay somebody. That includes yourself, right? You, you say, well, there's no, there's nothing in the Ten Commandments about not committing suicide. Well, there is unless you're stupid. All right? So these are the kind of things that I think are important to understand. In other words, there are a lot of ways to twist, to provide a pervasive, uh, pernicious doctrine. One of them is changing the definitions of words mistranslating words into something which is not what they say. Adultery is one of those. So nowadays, what does adultery mean? Well, you don't have a license to do this because only only the God of this world, the, uh, the one that issues the licenses, the county clerk or the magistrate can decide whether a marriage is valid or not. The heck with what the Bible says because if we declare that uh, you know two guys and a pigeon is a marriage, well, then so be it. And if that guy wants to go out and sleep with some other guy or go to Obama's uh, favorite gay bar in Chicago, that's okay. No, it's not. It has nothing to do with anything we're talking about because the meaning of words is clear. And what is going on there is not a, a wife. It's not a, uh, it's not a marriage. It's got nothing to do with any of this stuff, at least not so far as it isn't already clear from words like, Thou shalt not slay. One of the other things you'll see that makes for pernicious doctrine is, and this appears a couple times, the words are there in Scripture, uh, changing of times and seasons. Changing of times and seasons. Well, this is something that the quote-unquote Antichrist does. This is something that the beast system does. This is something that the whore church did and um, continues to do. Changing times and seasons. Well, that's kind of another way of looking at the, uh, the fact that there are nine or so of the commandments. Maybe eight, depending upon which Bible you want to look at. Maybe even less than that, because they change the meaning of words, like adultery. Well, so I'm not sure how many of the ten really apply. But if, we, if you look at those various websites that I mentioned, um, they will say the following. So here's one of them. Now, I've already mentioned the names. I'm not going to go uh, bad-mouth on any more of these sites any more than I already have under the say there's some pernicious twisted doctrine here, and I don't, uh, I don't trust them. Here are the Ten Commandments, says one, and where they are found in the New Testament. And um, 
Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Well, you know, there are a number of references to the Sabbath in the New Testament, assuming the assumption that Jews, under the law at the time of Christ, would be observing the Sabbath. But there is no direct or even indirect command for believers in the church age to observe the Sabbath. Eh, What a crock of... uh, Does the word forever throughout your generations, if you love me, keep my commandments, that Yahuwah and his son are the Lord of the Sabbath, that he never changed it? Doesn't that count for anything? As a matter of fact, when they say this, they're calling him a liar. Remember Matthew 5, 17 through 19. I didn't come to change not one yod or tittle, not the tiniest part. If he did away with the Sabbath, folks, somebody is a liar and the truth is not in them. And guess what? It isn't the Lord of the Sabbath. Because he never changed it. And there are other places, and I'm not going to re- read the rest of this, this, um, you know, bullpucky, the stuff that comes out of the rear end of a, uh, uh, well, an animal that's cleaner than the crap that they're spewing here. So that is one example. Uh, the Sabbath isn't repeated in the New Testament. Here's one with a chart of the occurrence of the commandments in the Old and New Testaments. And they say, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Eh, no, it's not in the New Why isn't the Sabbath day commandment repeated? Well, says the story here, ah, there are at least two reasons. One, now this first one's not so awful. There was more than one purpose for the Sabbath, which I'd say is obvious. And two, they changed the day. Who changed the day? Answer, not the Bible, not Scripture, not the Lord of the Sabbath, not the Creator, not the Torah made flesh, uh, not, um, well, I guess the only one who might have is another Jesus whom we have not preached. So it was changed, in other words, by the... um, by the Romanized, paganized church. Sunday, it says, is now the Lord's Day of Worship and Rest for His Church. Says who? The vicar of Christ with the funny fish hat? The guy who said, if you believe me, instead of the creator of the universe, well then keep my commandments and not his? Because, by the way, we can sell you indulgences too. All right? Uh, you know, I, 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 this, this stuff is offensively stupid, almost. Once you see it, again, you can't unsee it. There are others here that essentially say the same things. And then, of course, you'll find some that will, uh, that will obviously debunk all of this. But I would say it's real simple. If he puts it in the Ten Commandments and says, do it, and he says in all kinds of places over and over and over again. As a matter of fact, uh, I, I've mentioned and, and taught about elements of the Ot Bosch that are kind of like the HTML tags in Scripture, the uh, flashing red bold print that says, keep the Sabbath day, honor my Sabbath, keep it holy. It carries a death penalty. It's one of the few things in Scripture that we actually see where people, in fact, were killed for having uh, violated his, uh, his Sabbath. Uh, one, one of the things we see in Scripture, too, that I think is kind of educational, is Yahuwah uh, and his son not only kept it and said we should keep it forever, and he repeated that, but he also, uh, he being Yeshua, notice when he committed um, acts that were called violations of the Sabbath by the Pharisees, by the hypocrites, and he called them hypocrites, over and over again, if you go through the story of the uh, the Pool of Siloam and the, the men that he healed and so forth, um, what he is doing, uh, making mud, spitting in his hand, every single thing that he did in that story, fascinating. And Michael Rood does a great job with it. It's a, it's a, probably a half an hour, 45-minute presentation. All of the things that Yahushua did that are violations of their rules for the Sabbath, not his. And after all, you know, if your ox falls in a ditch on the Sabbath, wouldn't you get it out? Why? choose life. You see, when we understand this stuff carefully, correctly, consistently, it's not hard. But to say that he did away with it, or that because it didn't get repeated in the New Testament, that therefore it doesn't apply, it's not only a pernicious lie, it's calling him a liar, because he said he wasn't going to change it.
And that, I think, is the thing that, if I, if I was to put something in there that personally is offensive, and I think as offensive to him, it is this idea that you're calling him a liar by saying he can't keep his own word. And that really is offensive to folks, uh, to, to those who know him, to those who love him, and to those who keep his commandments. So let's not lose sight of all of that. Remember what the people in, uh, at, the, at Mount Sinai said, all that you have spoken we will do. What was it Yeshua came to do? He was, in fact, the Torah made flesh. He made it very clear. And why is it that the uh, whore church is arguably still in exile? Well, I think there's several reasons, but one of them is right there in that flashing, flash, big red flashing um, HTML symbol. It, it's a pernicious doctrine. And, uh, and there are others, too, of course. Um, like I said, we could go through this at some length and see how many places where Yeshua is teaching something and doing something. Uh, the story of the woman allegedly caught in adultery is an obvious one. I talk about that whenever we go through the various elements there. But notice, if uh, she was allegedly caught in the very act, you got to ask the most important, obvious, single question. Where's the man? Where's the man? And you're telling me you want to stone her, but you got you got no guy? Then either you're lying about one thing or you're lying about another, or you're just lying about the whole stinking mess. So over and over again, because we have changed the meanings of words or allowed the meaning of words to be changed. We, we do not seek out the truth for ourselves. Change the definitions. Everything from murder to adultery to his day. Changing times and seasons again. And uh, making up doctrine like, oh, the, the only ones that were repeated are the ones that count. Well, let me just make one other comment. Uh, how, how hard would it be if you had the original Hebrew copies of, say, Matthew and the other Gospels, maybe hidden away in some library and, oh, I don't know, maybe underneath the, uh, the, the Vatican in Rome somewhere. If you had the only copies you could find and if you destroyed all the other copies, how hard is it to just take the Greek and get rid of a, a few lines here and there and say, see, it's not in here. Remember what John says? Uh, all the stuff he did, you know, could fill lots and lots of books, more books than there are. This is just part of the story. So the fact that it's not in there proves absolutely, lutely nothing, except that uh, either it was removed or you got people that are lying about it. I, I was uh, going to hearken back to that place where the uh, uh, the man says um, that, oh, you know, why is the Sabbath commandment not repeated? Answer, there are, there are two reasons, maybe more, and I would say, yeah, there's at least one more. Uh, there was more than one purpose for the Sabbath. The day was changed, or how about we don't like it, so we took it out. Okay, the, the point here is the following, and this is also one that I have gone through before, but I'm going to read it out of um, a letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. Actually, it's the second letter that he wrote to the Corinthians. Uh, it's not something you haven't heard before, because I have talked about it frequently, but I think today it's especially important to uh, review because I'm going to I'm going to talk about some other things that are going on as well inside um, well in the world today that tell us tell us how far gone things are. Okay, so first this is Second um, Corinthians, second letter to the people in Corinth, and it starts in chapter ten. I, I like to back up and, and read this one first because he says basically, um, hey, look, don't think for a second that this is a physical war because even though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Everybody remembers this one, right? Like, uh, chapter 10, verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in Elohim, for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments. How about satanic arguments that he can't keep his own word, that he's a liar and the truth is not in him, that he said he wasn't changing anything, not one yod or tittle in the instruction, the Torah and the prophets, and they say, well, yeah, we did. 
Who's a liar? We're going to cast down those arguments. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty in him. What is the primary weapon we have? The sharp, double-edged, swift sword of his word. For pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and listen to this. And every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of Elohim. Hmm. How about liars who say he can't keep his own word, did away with his law? I put on my funny fish hat, I speak from the vicar of Christ position, and I'll tell God what he got wrong today. Yeah, if you get the impression, folks, that this is infuriating crap, it is. We have, in fact, oh, seems like I read this somewhere, yeah, Jeremiah 16. Uh, We have inherited lies from our fathers, literally, the fathers, the church fathers, things in which there is no truth, no profit bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of the Mashiach. Now, I'm going to take the word Christ and say, is that the original word that was used? Arguably not. Paul was a Hebrew and uh, an Aramaic speaker. He thought in those languages. I have no doubt he was fluent in lots of other languages, probably Greek as well. And maybe or maybe not, he might have transliterated the word. He might have used the word Christos, but you know what? Trouble with Greek is they got all kinds of pagan gods. They got all kinds of uh, theos. That's the term theology, where it comes from, the study of gods, plural. Uh, That doesn't sound exactly like what we want to be doing. I'd rather study the one true God. If I study fake gods, it's not with the purpose of learning about them. It's about distinguishing between the fake and the real. So um, how about Christos? Well, Christos is kind of a word that means little Christ, little pretenders. There's tons and tons of them. Yeshua said this himself in Matthew 24. A lot of people are going to be saying, here's a Christ, there's a Christ, everywhere Christ, Christ. Don't believe him. Hmm. What does he say here? Bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of what? The one true Mashiach, the Torah made flesh, the real salvation of Yah. The one whose name, not once while he was on earth, was he ever called Jesus, folks. Not once while he ever walked this planet in the flesh. His mama never called him that. Nobody who knew him ever called him that. They knew his real name. The name Jesus didn't exist for at least 15 or 16 centuries later. And it was a transliteration of something that was based on what? A Romanized, paganized, Flavius, Marxist, Maximus, Christus, Jesus. They added lots of suffixes to words. Because if you're really a a true Greek or Romanized God, you've got to have the sus on the end of your name. Or you're just not credible. Well, he didn't. He was the salvation of Yah, Yahushua. So, is that a big deal? Well, it's only a big deal if we recognize what Paul says next. Because he then goes into chapter 11 and says, Oh, you know what? I wish you'd just bear with me for a minute here. i got something I want you to to understand. Because I'm jealous with you and for you with godly jealousy. I betrothed you to one husband. One husband, would, would that be? Oh, yeah, the one true Elohim that I may present you as a chaste virgin to the Mashiach, the real one, not the fake. And he's going to emphasize that in one more verse here. Quote, For if he who comes, somebody comes to you, preaching another Jesus whom we have not preached. Now, this place, I think it's fair to leave that in there, because that's exactly what you hear on most sun-god days that were never changed from his Sabbath to a fake, about a guy who did away with the law, but the real one never did that. So, yeah, this is, in fact... Correct. Another Jesus whom we have not preached. Or if you get some different gospel um, uh, which you uh, have not accepted. Or, he says, if you receive a different ruach, a different spirit, a ghost maybe instead of the Holy Spirit, which you have not received, well, I'm afraid you just might put up with it. And you know what? 
He wrote that just a few short decades after Yeshua walked the earth. And it was already true. He was already seeing it. And here it is 17 plus centuries later uh, from the time where they changed it big time at Nicaea. So 300 years or so, and not quite 300 years, 200 and some odd after that, they made a major change at Nicaea, and that was later ratified by other uh, uh, essentially conventions and uh, um, uh, creeds of the apostles and so forth that changed a whole lot of stuff. You had to be that or they would uh, declare you anathema and maybe just uh, subject you to the Inquisition and kill you. One of the things you had to do was to give up what? The Sabbath, he said, to keep forever. Constantine liked it better on the sun god day. And a lot of people defend Constantine. I, you know, I honestly don't care. Uh, but I do care that whoever it was that changed it, maybe it was Constantine that just said, I won't kill you if you'll just change that one little thing for me. Uh, can't prove that. What we do know is that it's wrong. That somebody changed it and sure as hell wasn't the one who wrote the book. So how important is all of that? Well, it was important enough. He put it in red flashing HTML brackets and repeated it over and over and over and over and over again throughout the, oops, old, therefore it's done away, right? No. He repeated it over and over and over again throughout his word. And Yeshua made all kinds of comments about it. He is, in fact, he said so, the Lord of the Sabbath. And what he was doing was showing that the Pharisees weren't the Lord of the Sabbath. He was. Their prohibitions of what you could not couldn't do were not in accord with his word. So he was casting down some of that, but he wasn't throwing the baby out with the bathwater, and he wasn't saying, don't keep it, just because I'm healing on the Sabbath, because I'm choosing life, and I'm making a point, I want you to understand that. The Torah made flesh was teaching, because he was the Lord of the Sabbath, what was important about his Sabbath rest. How can he enter into a Sabbath rest without him? Back to um, back to Paul's letter here. I'll just make a couple of more points. If you haven't read that, if you don't understand it in context, I think that's what's important. Because I will admit, if you have been fed a lie all your life, if you have been told the law is done away with, and if you read a translation whose very translators, or at least those who transcribed it, uh, who, who believed that and understood that, and the words that they picked reinforce that, even if it was psychologically subtle, or maybe they did it on purpose. But regardless... They reinforce the lie. So if you read it and it's been translated by people who believe the lie, it's pretty easy to believe the lie yourself. But again, the thing I want to point out, once we see it, once we compare and realize that his word is consistent, absolutely consistent from Bereshit, from Genesis to Maps, through the end of the book and beyond, then you know, the scales fall off our eyes and we can recognize it and we understand how just a few words like adultery, changing the meaning, or wife as opposed to woman can change the meaning and make so many things that should be obvious uh, obfuscated. What does he say about people who do this? Someone's coming to preach another Jesus whom we've not preached. Or maybe they preach a different spirit that we that you've not received or different gospel than the one you're supposed to have gotten or maybe the one that you are getting on sun god days now, right? Well, you, you might put up with it, he says. And he goes on to say, um, uh, did I do not these things, and um, uh, is it because I don't love God? Uh, he knows. But what will I do? I will also continue to do. In other words, uh, there are things that I'm doing, and you need to understand why I'm doing these things, that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. 
Hmm. It, it's a it's a little bit on the wordy side, admittedly. It's a, it's a little bit highfalutin. That's part of the reason I think Peter says, you know, in the writings of our beloved brother Paul, there's a lot of stuff kind of difficult to understand, and it is often wrested or twisted by the unlearned and untaught. Why? Because they don't know the scriptures to their own destruction. And indeed, they do that with not only Paul's writings, but the rest of scripture too. It's not like we haven't been warned here. And, of course, as you know, and I'm not going to go there today, one of the places that they really twist Paul is we're saved by faith, not by works, lest any man should both. boast. But what, is, uh, what does somebody else say? Show me your faith by your works. I'm going to go to the uh, uh, one of what I think is the most important uh, elements of understanding faith here in just a minute, too. Uh, one of my very favorite stories in all of the uh, the Gospels about faith. But what does Paul say? Let's finish this up first. Such, he says, these folks that do this, they are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of, now I'll leave the word in here this time, Christ, another Jesus whom we've not preached. No wonder, he says, because Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Now, when Paul gets a little bit sarcastic, that's when it's even harder to uh, recognize how things have been twisted. Because, essentially, uh, he starts talking about, you know, the Jews and how I suffered at the hands of what? The Pharisees. Those who uh, say they are Jews but are not. Or maybe they be descendants of Judah, but they aren't, in fact, followers of his Torah. That, too, is a problematic distinction because if people don't understand it, if they think that the uh, the whole thing that the Jews did, the Torah, is what's done away with, well, they got a real problem. What they don't recognize is there's a whole lot of other things, right? 15, 1,600 plus commandments about Sabbath alone that were additions to, prohibited additions to the Torah. And so these distinctions are lost on people who say, I'm not under the law, but i got to keep sun god day because I'm under that law. Really? Why don't you obey him? And, and the Romans 13, they're under that law, sure as hell, right? Oh, i I got I to gotta obey the speed limits, and a big brother says, uh, slaves can't own un- guns unless I fill out my little yellow 4337 form like a good little slave, and I get my FBI permission, and when they tell me I better take the mark, why, sure I am, because I've been taught. When big brother says jump, you say how high. What does Paul say? This is kind of interesting. I'm going to read a little bit more after uh, he says, um, No great thing if these uh, ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness. Now, that word is not the same here. Why, why am I saying that? Well, because they'll tell you something's righteous when, in fact, it's a violation of his word. They don't know what righteousness is. They define it or they redefine it, just like they redefine adultery and wife and Sabbath. What does he say? No great thing if these ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, quote-unquote, whose end will be according to their works. That sounds like, oh, they're such wonderful good priests, right? They're going to get good stuff. They get their indulgences, and they get to make sure they're all paid up, and they go not straight, don't, they bypass purgatory, go straight to heaven, get their harp at, at the pearly gate from Peter. Or maybe not. Maybe that's not what he's saying. All right, he goes on to say, hey, lest someone think me a fool, I'm going to show you. I'm going to just boast a little bit here. And um, seeing that many boast according to the flesh, I'm going to boast too. Okay, so we can kind of brace yourself for a little bit of sarcasm. But he says this, and as I read it, I'll try to make the distinction as clear as I can. I encourage you to read this. Don't necessarily believe me. Study to show yourself approved. Rightly divide the word. All the things that Paul also says to do. But this is kind of interesting. This is... um, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 19. For you, he says, you put up with fools gladly. What? 
You put up with fools gladly, since you're so wise. Oh, there's some sarcasm. Because if you put up with it, uh, one brings you into bondage. If one devours you, if someone steals from you, if he exalts himself, if someone strikes you in the face, well, I'd say to our shame, we're too weak for that. Yeah, you put up with it. He just finished saying, not, not uh, ten verses earlier, uh, if someone come preaches another Jesus whom we've not preached, or another spirit, or another gospel, you will put up with it. That's what he just finished saying here. You put up with fools gladly, because, well, guess what? They bring into bondage, they devour you, they steal from you. You don't know any better. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christos? Well, how about if they're the ministers of Messiah? See, there's a difference there. That's where it matters. I am more so. More in labors, more in abundance, in stripes above measure, prisons more frequently, even in deaths often. I got I got my 40 minus 1 stripes more times, uh, five times. And I was beaten with rods and so forth. So a lot of bad stuff has happened to me, and he goes on to recount that. So essentially the point is, look, uh, you think you've seen problems here? Uh, you, you're going to boast about how you are so righteous that you're allowed to change the, the law and do away with it and preach another Jesus whom we've not preached? Well, I got you beat. So even then, uh, I think if we understand this, it's not hard to see through it. Now, from there, what I want to do is go to a story that I think also sets it up, uh, and then I'm going to go to some of the stuff that's in the um, in the current news that's important. This is that story that I think is one of the best in... Uh, in the, uh, in the apostolic writings, when it comes to explaining, helping us understand what it means to walk in faith. And uh, this is the story of um, when Yehoshua had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him. So this is the story of one of the centurions come to him, pleading with him and saying, Lord, my servant, he's laying at home, he is paralyzed, he is dreadfully tormented. And Yeshua said to him, well, I'll come and I'll heal him. Now, that's nice of him, isn't it? He, he sometimes doesn't necessarily say that, but in this case, he does. Centurion actually said, no, Lord, I'm not worthy. You should even come under my roof, okay? No, I'm not even asking for that. But if you'll only speak a word, my servant will be healed. Now, think about that. This guy is so filled with faith. Now, we're going to hear more of the story, but just to set it up, he's so filled with faith. No, you don't have to come and speak to him. I just know you can do it from right here. Because, he says, for I am also a man under authority. I have soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And I say to another one, come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. This is a centurion. He is under authority. He has authority. He understands authority. And he says, I know how it works. Yahushua heard this. He marveled. And he said to those who followed, quote, these are the words in red, assuredly I say to you, I have not found such great faith. No, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come. Now, wait a second. Now, he is going to follow this up with something which is important and I'm going to come back to. But I want to just cut to the chase for a second. He says, this guy gets it. This guy understands authority. Wow. So what does it say? He tells the centurion after he provides us with some more insight, which is vital. We'll come right back to it. He says to the centurion, go on your way as you have believed so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. So that kind of faith, it's done. All right, now what does he say? 
After he says, Assuredly, I haven't found such great faith, no, not even in Israel. And I say to you, speaking to the ones that were with him, that many will come from east and west. They'll sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the Malchut Hashemayim, in the kingdom of the heavens. Okay, so this is a future time he's talking about. People are going to sit down with the patriarchs. But the sons of the kingdom, who's going to sit with the patriarchs? Well, who's not? Let's, let's read on. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. They'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then he says, go, to the, uh, go on your way to the centurion, because the servant is uh, already taken care of, so let it be done for you. So what's interesting is when we read the story, it's almost like there are two separate things here being connected. That's why I think this is such an interesting examination of faith and why I want to make sure we talk about it today as we look at where we are and what it is we learn from some of this. He says that there are going to be folks who will come from the east and the west. They'll sit down with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in the Malkut HaShemayim. That sounds good, right? Hey, made it to, quote-unquote, heaven, the kingdom of the heavens. But the sons of the kingdom, is this a different kingdom? will be cast out into outer darkness. You know, some ain't going to make it there. They'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. See, what, what connection does that have with this centurion and his understanding of authority? Obviously, there is something to do with faith. Obviously, it's something very important about those. Maybe it has to do with what I just read in, in uh, 2 Corinthians, that there are those who are preaching in another Jesus and who talk about faith in the wrong kinds of gods, and who basically say, hey, faith in me, man, I'm the one that rewrites God's commandment. I got the fish hat here. By the way, if you know what I'm talking about, the Pope wears a funny hat sometimes that's a, literally, it's a representation of Dagon, the fish goddess, God, uh, Poseidon, and so forth. But it looks like a fish head. You've seen it. Great big white thing that looks like, look at it sideways. It's a fish head. Uh, and when he puts on that Dagon headdress, then he can, he can rewrite the commandments. Or at least some of them. Uh, it's hard to tell. You know, sometimes you rewrite. Some of them might have Catholics tell me, "Oh, well, he has to sit in the seat, and then when he issues an encyclical and does all of these things, then he can rewrite Scripture." Oh, I'm sorry, I, I didn't understand. There are rules for playing Jesus, huh? Okay, uh, I saw a thing from uh, uh, Archbishop uh, v- or Cardinal Vigano, uh, who is basically saying, "You know, it's possible some Catholics are going to have to recognize just maybe that um, the uh, Pope Satan is is not a real Pope." <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, uh, maybe Pope Satan is one of many that weren't real vicars of Christ. But uh, I guess it all just depends, right? We, we have a difference of understanding here. And this difference of understanding is key. And Paul says, well, he says, among other things, what, fe- what, what uh, uh, fellowship does righteousness have with unrighteousness? The Torah obedient with the not Torah obedient. Those who walk in rebellion with those who walk in faith. This is all about walking in faith and understanding what that means. And ultimately, what we have to recognize is there comes a time. Yeshua tells this story too, right? Uh, they, they receive you, great. They, they do the right things, fine. But if not, well then let your peace return to you, your shalom return to you. Wipe the dust off your feet as a witness against that house or those people and move on. We are rapidly getting to the point where I think these distinctions, these differences, another Jesus whom we've not preached, not only are they a matter of salvation and life and death, but they're a matter of imminence. As well, because it gets to the point where uh, the um, the end will come suddenly, as, as Yeshua also says. So, are, is it important that we know which commandments are of Him and which aren't? Well, it's only important if we want to understand when we are following the real Mashiach and when we're following a fake, another Jesus whom we've not preached. There's a reason I will suggest why Paul says, "Work out your own salvation, your own 
Yeshua, with fear and trembling. Because it does matter. I hear people say, well, it doesn't matter if you follow the Ten Commandments or if you keep the wrong day or if you eat some pork. Um, well, pork may end up meaning that you, you, you find out the truth sooner than if you don't eat the pork. right? But the point is, they'll say, oh, these aren't salvific issues. Maybe, maybe not. But I'll tell you one thing that is. Following after another Jesus whom we've not preached. Getting the wrong Mashiach, whose blood doesn't matter squat and doesn't redeem you from anything. Hmm. Maybe there are some things here that are really worth studying to show yourself to prove for. These pernicious doctrines, in other words, can have ramifications that go far beyond uh, what people might uh, want to assume was the case. All right, here is the story that I was... uh, uh, I, I guess it's not. I'm not starting anymore. We're, we're well underway at this point. But um, this is a uh, this is a comment from uh, James Howard Kunstler. I saw it repeated a couple places. All newspapers. I've liked Jim Kunstler's writings for a long time. But um, here is his comment today. Because you have a guy who arguably is senile, uh, certainly puts his hand on a Bible and lies. Anybody that thinks this guy is remotely quoted, well, I guess you could say he's a Christian. He's probably a good Christian when it comes to uh, uh, doing away with the law and pretending that he knows that uh, when he looks in the mirror, he sees God. He may not see what's behind him or what's uh, what's in the wall that he's walking in, but he sure knows when he sees God in the mirror. Anyway, this is Jim Kunstler. He says, pity the poor president or alleged president. Joe Biden, yeah, the Biden Fuhrer, he must now decide whether to go to war with Iran or with Texas. Yeah, I can see where that's a tough call, right? Which will it be? Or maybe he'll decide to go to, to war with both. Does Governor Abbott turn out to be the Putin of the Purple Sage? How does he dare interfere with the orderly flow of new voters, fine people coming in by the millions across that filthy little river of his? Does he not understand that we need at least a couple of million more live bodies allocated to the swing states, uh, you know, to vote for the right people and ensure a free and fair democracy election? And by the way, he says, what is Hunter, the smartest person I know, he's quoting the Fuhrer, make of Dad's quandary, I wonder. Well, with enough eau de coco on board, coke, uh, Hunter must be thinking in biblical terms. Uh, in my father's house there are many mansions. Verily, verily, where did I leave my little baggie? And so forth. The works that I do, uh, he shall do also. Greater works than these shall these people do, those who come in the Biden Fuhrer name, because I go unto my dad. All right. Well, you know, some, there's some sarcasm here, but I think he makes a really excellent point, folks, and it's really the one I've, I'm alluding to with, with um, uh, well, all possible candor. Joe Biden, the Biden Fuhrer, the guy who wasn't elected, who put his hand on a Bible, and everybody with half a brain knows he lied through his damnable, probably fake teeth. Whether to go to war with Iran or Texas, that's the question. How many innocent Americans who actually believe that BS that I spouted when I put my hand on a Bible about me preserving, protecting, and defending the Constitution? Ha! Deplorable fools. I'll show them. I've already poked them, mandated the poison poke. I'm killing their kids. I'm transgendering them. They're not going to bear any grandchildren for these folks. What else can I do besides just killing them outright? Well, I know. We'll invade the country. We'll send their little boys and girls, if they're still alive, and they don't keel over from the injections I've already given them. We'll send them off to die for some other country's borders. Anywhere else except the southern border of the United States. I I saw something today that I thought was interesting as I was listening to a, a story about a naval encounter. Right where the Houthis launched some missiles, some uh, drones and anti-ship missiles against um, various uh, naval vessels in the uh, uh, the Red Sea, the Sea, uh, the, the Gulf of Oman, and so forth. There's 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 battles at hand there, and it was like this: 
Um, evidently, one of the uh, naval vessels um, had a missile that got through the first several layers of defenses, almost hit the ship, and it was taken out by the final close-in defensive system that got it um, you know, too close for comfort before it hit the uh, before it hit the ship, took out the destroyer. And I got to thinking, you know, poor Hooties, too. Now, ask yourself this question. I mean, I'm serious about this one. Because I I think it shows a contrast, even though there's not a lot of discussion about this. I mean, these poor sailors on board this boat defending somebody else's borders in a land that's halfway around the world from the home that uh, is being undefended by the same military that doesn't even deserve the title Department of Defense. So ask yourself this question. Why are the Houthis wasting these drones, even though they're cheap drones and they're taking out $2 million missiles? Well, maybe that's the reason. Maybe they just want to take uh, $2,000 drones and take out as many $2 million missiles as they can till we run out of them. Oh, okay, well, that's a, that's a halfway decent reason. But if they really wanted to destroy a ship, why not fight an easier target? Why are they wasting all this uh, time and energy firing missiles and drones against well-defended ships? Well, maybe it's because they're off their borders, and they care about their borders more than Biden cares about Texas's. But ask yourself this question. Here's where I'm heading to, and maybe, you've already, maybe you're already there, because this is what I think should shock us. Why would you waste all this ammunition and missiles against well-defended military naval vessels when, in fact, you got an entire thousand-mile undefended border? Come on in! Doesn't cost you anything. The missiles, the uh, the naval vessels have missile defenses. They have defenses against drones. They have close-in uh, various radar-guided weaponry. They are well defended. Not like the border in Texas or Arizona or New Mexico or even the coastline of Florida. You can come on in anywhere you want. Hell, we'll give you bus tickets. We'll give you Obama phones and cash cards. And you can go join up with your cells. You know, ask us. We'll probably even tell you where the communist Chinese cells are and where the where the Hootie cells are in your in your you know neighborhood of choice. So when it comes to this understanding, right, an undefended border versus uh, why are you wasting uh, ammo against well defended military targets? They're not doing anything that actually defends this country anyway. So uh, you know what I'm saying is obvious. If the Houthis really wanted to kill Americans, they didn't have to worry about three Americans in a place where arguably they were just sitting ducks anyway. There's plenty of easy targets, and I guess some of them already know this, all across America, especially in the blue cesspool cities. Come on in. Nobody's stopping you. And that is part of the issue here. It's part of the reason why I say have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness is a little bit of what we need to understand. It's part of why I'm emphasizing 2 Corinthians 11.4 and this idea Uh, You know, what kind of faith do we have? If somebody comes preaching another Jesus whom we've not preached, if they're so stupid they don't know the difference, if they don't know, if they're really trying to sell you this crap about how the Sabbath wasn't repeated in the New Testament, so even though the God of the Bible that we don't care about anyway, even though he says over and over and over and over and over again, you can go through and count. Look up the word Sabbath in in all the scriptures and see how many times he emphasizes it and how he says over and over again. Keep my Sabbath throughout your generations and all your dwelling places forever. But but you got these whores that are saying, oh, well, he didn't mean that. Well, more importantly, the real God, the one with the funny fish hat, changed it. And we all like that one better because it's Sun God Day. We don't really care much about that God of the Old Testament. This is the um, the, the uh, essentially the 
the cancer of Marcion that infected the church, uh, you know, in the uh, approximately 5th century or so and has become uh, literally malignant throughout the world at this point. Have no fellowships with the unfruitful works of darkness. Are we beginning to see the point? How are we going to recognize, for example, the, um, the false flags, the agent provocateurs, the invaders, and uh, I heard uh, I heard Alex Jones talking about how in in Texas you have local law enforcement and even some border patrol, and even some of the um, essentially military forces or retired military that's in the area. They're seeing through this. They saw a memo from the Biden fuel regime saying, "Uh oh, the, the MAGA type right wing extremists. They're looking to provoke something." Oh, come on. How stupid? Well, the answer is they think people really are that stupid. But good news is there's a lot of border patrol. There's a lot of people in the military and the uh, Texas National Guard and the uh, the local sheriff's departments and uh, police departments and others that are saying we see through this crap. Somebody gets out of a uh, uh, of a Prius parked at the border with pink hair and carrying an AR-15 that the locals are told uh, you know Biden doesn't want you to have, but this guy's got it. But he's got a MAGA hat on under uh, over his pink hair. Guess what he is. Can we can we tell? So they're seeing through a lot of it, but it's um, it's not always that obvious. And when it comes to the whore church, when it comes to things that I think I am I'm very concerned about and wanting to make sure we understand, it's portions like this one about Yitro. It's understanding how his commandments have been twisted, how they say that they're done away with, they don't apply anymore, the things that we don't bother to do anymore that we had better understand, because this is going to be uh, not just where the rubber meets the road, but how we discern those who are wolves in sheep's clothing from those who are actually walking in obedience. If you love me, keep my commandments. You put up with fools gladly. If you let someone take you into bondage, if someone devours you, takes from you, exalts himself, strikes you in the face, yeah, it's because you're too weak to understand the difference. So it's about time we start paying attention and looking at that. All right, I'm going to pause. I want to ask, are there any questions so far? And uh, did I miss anything? Um, and if not, I want to, I want to close with, uh, yeah, another element that is certainly probably not news to a lot of us, but it certainly is also something that I think is uh, incredibly important to pay attention to now. I want to go to, um, let's, let's turn to the end of the book of the prophet Yeshayahu, or Isaiah, right? Salvation uh, is uh, Yahushua. Isn't it funny? The, literally, the mission of the prophet is reflected in his name. And if you think about it, Yahushua and Yeshayahu are kind of the same terminology, just slightly backwards. Uh, the salvation of Yah, or <laughs> salvation is of Yah. There are several ways you can, you can render it, but either he's talking about the salvation of Yah and heralding the way. By the way, John the Baptist did the same thing. Uh, or, in fact, the name is the salvation of Yah. So one way or the other, it makes the same, tells the same story. Right, chapter 65, next to the last chapter, is um, where we're going to get some clues about, I think, how, how these pieces fit together today. These are the words in red. Prophet speaking for the Creator, in other words. I was sought by those who didn't ask for me. I was sought by those who did not ask. I was found by those who did not seek me. I said, Hineni, Hineni. Right, Hebrew, for here I am. To a nation not called by my name. Now, right here, let's pause a second. How about a nation that doesn't know his name, that's been taught that his name has changed, that it doesn't matter? Isn't this fascinating? If we begin to see how these pieces fit together, 
And that's why I emphasize the story of the book of Exodus. Ki ani Yahuwah is so important to understand. It's, his name is not, I am the Lord. There's lots of lords, tons of them. There's just one, though, who did all these miracles. Just one whom we're supposed to serve and follow. Just one who sent his son and whose name means, literally, the salvation of the one who sent me, Yahoo, Shua. So he says, I was, I was found by those who didn't seek me. I said, Hineni, Hineni, here I am. I, I was sent to a nation that was not called by my name. I have stretched out my hands all day long, he says, to a rebellious people who walk in a way that's low-tove. Low-tove, that's the same words Jethro spoke. What you're doing is low-tove, not good. So he has stretched out his hand. Uh, what? Well, if you think about it, this is part of the story of the two whoring wives, northern kingdom, southern kingdom, Ahola, Ahola, by Israel and Judah, northern and southern, right? What did they do? What do they have in common? They both walked in rebellion. They both committed idolatry, adultery. They were both sent into exile, shalak, for that very reason. I have stretched out my hands, he said, all day long to a rebellious people. Two kingdoms, in fact, northern and southern, who walk in a way that is low-tove, no good. According to their own thoughts, a people who provoke me to anger continually to my face. You would have no other gods before my face. We like the sun god day better. We like our Christmas trees and our bunnies and our eggs better. We like our fertility goddesses better. We like Moloch and Baal. Oh, we sure as hell like Ishtar better. We like our rainbow flags better. We like cutting the genitalia off our little kids before we sacrifice them to those fake gods too. Any surprise here? They provoke me, he says, to anger continually in my face. They sacrifice in gardens. They burn incense on altars of brick. They sit among the graves, spend the night in the tombs. They eat swine's flesh and the broth of abominable things in their vessels. Matter of fact, they're brewing them up. They're going to sell them to you. You're going to eat bugs and you're going to like it. Hmm. I, I look at this and I say, you know, any questions? Can we not see how, in fact, this is a recurring theme throughout history, right? The abominations, uh, d- bubble, bubble, toil and trouble. It's not like this is new. It's just like it has now gone to a level never before even technologically possible in human history. To the point where we now got AI gods that not just like wood and stone, they sit there. But the silicon gods, they're animated. They'll talk back to you. Hell, you can make little sex toys out of them. This is a really nasty, ultimate, um, biblical-level fulfillment of exactly what was, in fact, happening. Isaiah saw it, warned people about it, and here we are again, and now it is building to a biblical climax. They sacrifice in gardens, sit among the graves, they eat swine's flesh, the broth of abominable things in their vessels. They say to themselves, keep to yourself, don't come near me, because I am holier than thou. I keep sun god day. I make my gifts to the right kind of people. I give to Planned Parenthood. I'm holier than you. I am a virtue-signaling little Karen. I am deserving of great stuff from my my beloved Lord Big Brother. And guess what? Big Brother will reward them. They get maybe a, a slot on the view. They are smoking my nostrils, he says, a fire that burns all day. Wow. Behold, it's written before me, I won't keep silent, but I will repay, even repay into their bosom. Your iniquities, the Torahlessness, the iniquities of your fathers together, says Yahuwah, who have burned incense on the mountains and blasphemed me on the hills. Therefore, I will measure out their former work into their bosom. I see what's going on in the news today, folks, and i got to admit, uh, is it 
would it be undeserved if he allowed uh, New York and Chicago and um, San Francisco, uh, fill in the blank, uh, a bunch of cesspool cities to be nuked? Sadly, uh, you know, I don't wish that on anyone, but the truth of the matter is, when it happens, you can rest assured that the creator of the universe will be completely, absolutely, without question, justified in whatever it is that his judgment mandates needs to happen. Thus says Yahuwah. Just as new wine is found in the cluster and one says, don't destroy it, for a blessing is in it, so will I do for my servants' sake that I may not destroy them all. Here's the good news. And here we're going to see something that's really interesting because it's kind of specific. It's one of the few places where a number is assigned to the remnant. So, I will do this for my servants' sake, he says, so that I won't destroy them all. I will bring forth descendants from Yaakov and from Judah, an heir of my mountains. My elect shall inherit it, and my servants shall dwell there. Sharon will be a fold of flocks, the valley of Achor, a place for herbs to, uh, for herds to lie down, for my people who have sought me. Let me say it again. It is vitally important that we diligently seek him. If you seek me, right? Seek and ye shall find. If you love me, keep my commandments. Over and over again, his word is consistent. We just simply have to look, and he will reward. He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. For my people, it says here, who have sought me. But you, he's talking to the rest of them, you are those who forsake, no, not the Lord. They got their lords. They got their Baal, their Molech, their Ishtar. Uh, but you are those who forsake Yahuwah, he says, who forget my holy mountain, who prepare a table. Now, here comes a list of various fake gods for Gad. Now, Gad is literally a troop or fortune. So they prepare a table for fortune. Have you ever heard the term Lady Luck? Luck be a lady tonight. Uh, yeah, Lady Luck, fortune, serendipity. There's all kinds of, of you know names for these, these pagan gods in English that essentially are the gods of fortune. So there's one. Who furnish a drink offering for many, uh, M-E-N-I, literally a, uh, uh, to number or to destroy. And don't you think that the destroyer is, is certainly welcome in the swamp. Uh, they worship at that altar all the time. Um, and they did it last night, as you know. Therefore, I will number you, speaking to those same folks, for the sword. And you shall all bow down to the slaughter. Because when I called... Now, this is a theme we're going to hear again. Listen carefully to this one. Because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not hear. But you did evil before my eyes and chose that in which I do not delight. Now, he says, my servants shall eat. You will be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you will be thirsty. My servants shall rejoice, but you shall be ashamed. Behold, my servants shall, sh shall sing for joy of heart, but you shall cry for sorrow of heart and wail for grief of spirit. You shall leave your name as a curse to my chosen. Isn't that interesting? Now, I was looking for the, uh, the reference that... Um, I mentioned there's a place in uh, in here essentially where he says um, he gives a number and he says a remnant and the remnant will be a tenth. So that's the good news. I guess that there are actually um, indications and, and this is kind of the number that I've always thought was uh, was the case anyway that the remnant is maybe ten percent. So a whole lot of people are going to not make it and um, the remnant on the other hand does.
but we want to be part of the remnant. We want to make sure we understand uh, what it is that we are, uh, are seeking to be part of and what we need to avoid. From there, I want to read the, um, the place that uh, I almost always turn to when we, when we look for a conclusion to um, where we are and what we need to understand. Chapter 66, last chapter in Isaiah. Thus says Yahuwah, on this one will I look. On this one will I look. Okay, we want to be among this, right? Uh, one who is poor and of a contrite spirit. You'll, you'll see the words meek. I don't think this necessarily means someone who doesn't have any uh, any filthy lucre necessarily, although if somebody is accumulating filthy lucre for the end of, of having dishonest weights and measures, yeah, I, I don't want to be in anywhere close to that one. But um, Moshe was um, was a nav, meek. And uh, I contend, and this is another teaching, but that uh, that word and a contrite spirit means teachable. We've inherited lies from our fathers. What do we do about it? Well, we seek... And find, we learn, we come out of her. On this will I look, on the person who does the following, who is poor and of a contrite spirit, and who trembles at my word. As we begin to realize, we haven't kept his Sabbath. We have done things that arguably he says not to do. Uh, maybe we didn't know before. Certainly in the, in the Torah there's a distinction between um, unintentional sin and willful sin, continuing in rebellion. Right? If you again put him to shame, then there is no, there remains no sacrifice for continuing to engage in willful rebellion at his word. This next part here is, is highlighted. I encourage you to highlight this in your Bibles if you haven't yet. Uh, it starts out in verse 3, He who kills a bull as if he was one who slays, there's that word, a man, uh, sacrifices a lamb as if he breaks a dog leg. Uh, what's the point here? Um, he is not talking about the fact that um, there aren't things that people do in, in, in the Torah, and maybe you can't even, well, you can't. You, you physically cannot do these things anymore. That's not the point. And he says this, and Isaiah talks about it too. It's not like I really was pining for the blood of, of bulls and goats. That was not the point. The point is I want you to understand that this poor animal is dying because of something you did, and he doesn't deserve it. But the point is the bigger issue. And so now we can't actually do this, but what we can do is understand the, um, the, the issue at stake here. Just as they have chosen their own ways, he says, and their soul delights in their abominations, so will I choose their delusions and bring their fears upon them. Now let's pause. Because uh, I have had this discussion with lots of people over the last, well, month, uh, certainly even over the last several years, but over the last month it seems like it's just it's gone exponentially. We look at the world, we see the stuff that's going on, we see the gang rape of the rule of law, we see the invasions, we see the... It goes beyond idiocy, right? I, I run out of words to describe the superlatives of stupid that are, that are going on. Cutting the genitalia off little boys and little girls injecting them with drugs, and, and teaching them crap so that they can literally be destroyed by people who make those that sacrifice children to Molech look almost kind by comparison. And oh yeah, while this is going on, they're also executing kids in their baby destruction mills, and they're selling them into sex slavery and profiting from the border trade to boot. So, you know, no surprise here, but think about this. 
just as they've chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. I can't even list all the abominations that you can see any evening in the daily news. I will choose their delusions. Ever tell, you ever dealt, ever talked to somebody wearing a mask alone in a car, right? Or they come up to you in a grocery store and say, you're not wearing your mask. And they remind me of that invasion of the body snatchers at the end where Donald Sutherland goes, ah, and the body snatchers got him. You ain't going to reason with a person like that. You are, you're not going to be able to tell them what scripture says. They could care less. They are just plain friggin' delusional. <laughs> Isaiah was right. Just as they chose, as they've chosen their own ways, and their soul delights in their abominations, so will I. This is the Creator speaking. I will choose their delusions. Guess what, folks? Once He chooses their delusions, you might as well give up. Time to wipe off the dust from your feet and move on. This is part of what I'm talking about with discernment. Okay, when they show up, when they deal with what is coming, um, we need to be separate. What fellowship has righteousness, has obedience, has our Creator with any of those folks who serve, well, one thing's for sure, I'll say it kindly, it sure as hell isn't the God of the Bible. It isn't yod heh vav So yeah, he says, I'll choose their delusions, bring their fears upon them, because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not hear. What did they do instead? Exactly what you see. Flip on the news. They did evil before my eyes, and they chose that in which I do not delight. Here, meet my partner. Uh, you know, meet my... Oh, come on. It has gone so far, literally so far off the rails, that um, I, I, I don't think at this point that there's any rational way we can can reconcile, can rationalize it, can say anything other than we certainly know what needs to happen. We just plain need to separate. Because there is no middle ground. There is no compromise with outright Satanism. Here's what he tells us. Hear the word of Yahuwah. You who tremble at his word. This is us. Hear the word of Yahuwah. You who tremble at his word, your brethren who hated you, who cast you out for my namesake, a name they don't even like to hear, said, let the Lord be glorified. Yeah, they, that's what they really did say in this case. Our Lord, not the, not the God of the Bible whose name we took out of that Bible. Let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. But he says, they shall be ashamed. Somewhere down in here, there's another one too that uh, is is always kind of edifying for the uh, for the whore church, because they'll say, "Well, he doesn't care if we eat pig." Well, maybe not, but he does tell you that if you eat things that he says are not food, you very well may suffer the curses that are written in great big letters there in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Check out verse 60 and 61. Your immune system, once it's destroyed, isn't going to protect you. Neither will he. What is the end of that? What is the goal of that? What is the result of that? Well, you die one way or another. You made your choice. Sorry. To those who sanctify and purify themselves, he says, they go to the gardens after an idol in the midst, eating swine's flesh and the abomination and the mouse. Maybe they'll have some um, some um, uh, Lord New World Order WEF uh, bug meal to have along with it. That would be the abomination, I guess. Uh, things that aren't food, things that are genetically modified frankenfoods. 
They go to the gardens, they eat swine's flesh, the abomination, and the mouse, and they shall be consumed together, says Yahuwah. For I know their works and their thoughts. It'll be that I will gather all the nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. I'll set a sign among them, and those among them who escape, I will send to the nations, to these various places, and they will declare my glory among the nations. So we're, I can't help but think, right, as we get to a place that is so over the top in terms of what we're seeing and the things that are going on and the things that are just plain incomprehensible, that we are definitely getting awfully, awfully close, right? Our, uh, you know, it always comes up, are, are we in the end times? Well, you know, I like to put it this way, we can smell them from here. Um, I don't do dates. I don't know whether we have days or weeks, months, or maybe hours at this point. But I do know that, as he says many places, many times, we are without excuse if we can't see it by now. Um, uh, let's pray. Yahuwah Eloheinu, Yahuwah Echad. Father, we come before you. We thank you. We thank you for your blessings, for your protection, for your provision. We thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you for the warnings and for the clarifications, for the distinctions. We pray, Father, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Give us discernment. Help us to be among those who uh, know and understand and seek your face. Because we know you are a rewarder of those who do seek. Help us to find, we pray. Guide us in this time ahead. Deliver us from the adversary. Show us the way that we should walk. We know that we're told we should pray that be counted worthy to escape these things that are coming upon the earth and to be found doing your work when you return. So we pray that we would be found doing your work from here on out through however much time remains. Guide us because above all, we choose to be good and faithful servants unto you. Help us in that, we pray. And this we ask in your set-apart name, for you are our King, our Redeemer, our Savior, our help in times of trouble. You are Yahuwah Zedikne, Yahuwah Vitzivenu, Yahuwah Zevuot, Yahuwah Nisi, our banner, our healer, Yahuwah Rapha, our all-sufficient El Shaddai, and we thank you and praise you. Hallelujah. Amen. I guess one more thing that I want to do as we as we close today, before I do the Aharonic blessing, I... Uh, I thought of this earlier, and I said, "Yeah, I need to put this as part of the uh, as part of the reading for today." Uh, and it's actually the very first of um, the Psalms, and it goes like this: "Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the Torah of Yahuwah." And in his Torah he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, maybe living water even, that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, the Torah obedient. For Yahuwah knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Don't see any other questions? Uh, let's then, let's close with the Aharonic blessing. We remember that Yahuwah spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak in turn to Aharon and his sons, and say to them, this is how you bless the Benai Yisrael. Say to them, Ivarekaka Yahuwah varish mareka, Yair Yahuwah panavaleka vichoneka, Isaiah hu 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 h
pen havlecha, viasim lecha ha ha, shalom. May Yahuwah bless you and keep you. May Yahuwah make his face to shine upon you. May Yahuwah lift his countenance upon you and give you his shalom. Amen. Thus he said, they shall put Shemi, my name, on the Benai Israel, and I myself shall bless them. And uh, may it be so.